welcome to episode 76 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Jesse, have you heard the big news? Um, I think I know the big news that you're talking about, but can you please tell me? I can. The big news is that we have added a new show to our roster at the Society of Reform Podcasters. Boom. So this is a show that actually has been around longer than any of the other shows in the podcast uh, network that we're in. It's pretty exciting. So we added the Confessional Collective to our roster, which is um, the Confessional Collective is broader than the podcast. So it's a it's a network of confessional church planners. They have like these cohorts that meet to sort of like work through sort of the challenges of being a church planter and then some of the unique challenges of being like a confessional church planter. Um, and the show is great. And so Chris Santola, who you may have uh, remembered from the Reformed Outlook for a while, he is one of the co-hosts uh, and Aaron Carr is the other co-host. And they um, they bring a pastoral voice to our network that I think um, we haven't really had. Right. So I'm really excited. They are good stuff. Those guys are on point. So you should definitely subscribe to that. I think I'm just going to call them either C squared or Coco. How do you feel about yeah. that? Coco seems good. I like Coco. <laughs> I think that's the one you were going to choose. I'm actually drinking Coco right now. So maybe that has something to do with it's why I'm amenable to that. But probably what people should do is just get connected with the whole Reform Podcast Society feed, right? Because that's got everybody, all the great stuff that comes out of all these different podcasts. It's Mega like feed. A, a wonderful little radio station of just good reform stuff from every different perspective of every person that's on the society. So you can't go wrong. Yeah. And I'm excited to see the way that this, this crazy little uh, invention or experiment that we started a couple months back is developing because every show is a little different. So you're not, it's not just, you know, six theology podcasts. Um, the Nerd Gospel podcast is very, very different than our show, and our show is very different than Fast God stuff. And um, it's just really nice to see that reformed podcasting doesn't just have to be two or three guys talking about like like technical theology. It can be it, exactly. goofy and talking about movies and stuff. So I'm I'm really stoked to see how it's it's coming together. This is true unity and diversity, is it not? Yeah, I mean this is a is. really great thing. I'm, I really am stoked about this. So yeah, I listen to it. Everybody should go. Check it out. So being that we're now really pumped up for things that we like, you got something that you're affirming this week? I do. So I am affirming an open invitation for the gospel. So let me explain. Oh. So um, a couple weeks back, um, my wife and I are on like the public mailing list for our local library. And a couple weeks back, um, our local library sends out kind of a call to our, a call to arms and says, is there anybody in the community that has special skills or special knowledge base because we're trying to um, we're trying to like buff up our fall our spring programming so Ashley emailed back and said well my husband and I both went to seminary he's got these degrees I've got this degree do you think there'd be any interest in someone coming to teach a class about the Bible and they wrote back and they were like that sounds awesome wow so on April 7th uh, I'm gonna be doing an hour-long kind of seminar on what is the Bible? Why can we trust it? Like, how did we get it? Um, so pray for me if you're listening to this. Um, I really want to go into this, um, you know, well studied and well prepared, but this really is an open door for the gospel. And like the library is doing all of our like 
publicity for it. They're sending out all the emails to the town. They've printed up all our flyers. Um, so we're really excited about this opportunity. That's fantastic. That's incredible, actually. It really is. What like super amazing... ultra secular northern New England yeah. and like the library, the public library is. And just a side note, the reason I think that this is such like they were so ready to do this is because Ashley has like faithfully been a member and like an active participant in that library, not just like since we moved back, but her whole life. And so she knows all the ladies there by first name. They recognize her when they come in. When I go in, they recognize me and know that I'm there to pick up Ashley's books. So like we've built, (laughs) we've built that relationship and now they trust us, even though we are Christians and we have kind of a different perspective on things. Yeah, for sure. They trust us to come in and use their space and to teach people in the town um, what we, whatever we want to teach them, they haven't given us any sort of like restrictions or anything. So it's pretty, it's pretty cool. It's a pretty that, cool opportunity. That's pretty incredible. Actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, the public library space, dude, that library is awesome. And it that is. as an aside should be a recommendation. Everybody should just, again, go to the library, get a library card, get involved yeah. in the lifeblood of your community library, because no matter where you live, it's actually a pretty small group. And there's a lot, that, yeah. a lot of good that can be done through those channels. Yeah, absolutely. What about you? So I'm affirming something slightly in that, I guess in that vein, but a little bit different. I'm just going with Twitter because something oh, strange happened to me this week, which I, I talked to you about a little bit. I'm like a nobody on the internet, which is totally fine with me. And I have a Twitter account and there's maybe like a hundred followers, but I keep it mainly as like a, a log for if I come across a quote or I'm thinking about something and it's kind of like my little personal notebook. Anyway, this week I happened to tweet, this is what I tweeted. The following is a list of all the verses from scripture which, which give instruction on Lent, colon, nothing. That, that's it, right? So I saw that. So I recognize like on a scale of one to 10, 10 being like super ridiculous. How snarky do you think that is? That That's like a, I'd say that's like a solid six and a half. Okay. That's kind of where I thought like more, yeah. more middle of the pack. This experience is something I've never had before. The thing just blew up. So I don't have that many followers, but it ended up getting like 10, 000, over 10,000 different impressions and over wow. like 635 different interactions. That's awesome. And of course, some people were like, yeah, that makes sense right on. And then there was just like a whole host of people that this thing just rubbed them entirely the wrong way. So it's been an interesting yeah. week because I've gotten exposure to just both the good and the bad side of the internet, but I'm kind of affirming it from the standpoint of, I guess it's it's worth to keep tweeting stuff for the gospel because you never yeah. know, even if you're just in your own little corner like I am, where yeah, it's going to get picked up. There's never a way to predict when something is going to go viral like that. You went viral. Is that viral like, though? It is. It, I mean, on a small scale, but like that's what it is. Like you, I'm, I'm sure there's like a technical definition of some of going viral out there, but I would say like when you triple or quadruple, or in this case, like decituple. I don't know what yeah. 10 times would be when you, when you decituple your viewer, like your followers with impressions, that's gotta be viral, right? I guess so. It was wild. It was strange enough that well, I did it like midweek and then I was at work. Like, you know, I did it before I went to bed. It was no big deal. Yeah. Nobody had seen it midday. I think two days later, I get like the email that's like, you have notifications from Twitter. It actually says you have 85. And I was like, this is so weird. This is so weird. Twitter is weird because I was like, I think sometimes because I have multiple devices, it thinks I have new notifications, but the 85 is clearly like of all time. That's like the all time cumulative list of 85 notifications. No, it just turned out that was from like the past four hours. That's crazy. (laughs) It's, it's a silly little tweet. I mean, in the sense that it's just me 
giving an observation, but it's, I guess I bring it up because it's funny how that particular subject really touched a nerve with a lot of people, both good and bad. Yeah. So, let me, uh, let me make an observation of my own. Cause when I saw that tweet, my, my head went to, there are going to be immediately two kinds of people who respond to this. Right. There's going to be the people who are like, yeah, good work. And then there's going to be the people that don't actually provide any Bible verses to counteract you or count, like refute you, but just go crazy about how much they love Lent and how terrible you are. Oh, that and is I think so like that's really accurate. telling, isn't it? Like it, it would, if, if you were wrong and there were Bible verses in, with instructions about Lent, it would be a simple matter to provide them. Right. But no, nobody did that. Nobody, I'm assuming nobody even tried to do that. No. Yeah. No, you were right crazy. on. In fact, what ended up happening is those that kind of wanted to push against, back against that idea didn't pull from the scriptures. Instead, they went in like another direction where they're like, where are the instructions on how to use the word Trinity? Or where are the instructions yeah. on like how to do your daily devotions? And I was like, welcome to Adventures and Missing the Points. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Welcome to being an Anabaptist is what we call that. Yeah, exactly. So it was funny because then the person who responded, I guess, and said, like, where are the instructions about daily devotions? And that may have been an honest question, although yeah. judging from this person's profile and their credentials, I don't think it was. But yeah, I think they're trying to be snarky in return. And that's fair because I was being snarky. But then somebody else responded to them. and was like, just listed a bunch of different like passages about meditating <laughs> on the scriptures and stuff. And I was like, I'm not even involved in this anymore. This is fantastic. So that's the beauty of it. Yeah. Keep tweeting. Keep tweeting the gospel. That's all I got to say yeah. about that. All right, Absolutely. so what about something that you'd really like to deny? Hit me with a really great denial. I'm waiting so for it. So this denial is going to extend to our entire episode. Ooh. So we'll have to take a slight pause and have your denial. But um, I'm denying man-made holy days, right? Preach. So uh, to piggyback off of your Twitter experience, I had my own Twitter experience of the week, which for <laughs> me is not all that unusual of an experience. <laughs> But I, um, I maybe f I flamed out a little bit using that intentionally on the um, Ooh, Ash Wednesday so attack. Good. So it all started with a. It was the um, the meme is called trying to impress a girl, and it's like a guy and a girl. And this one, this iteration, they're like at a water cooler, and the top the top is supposed to be the girl, and she says, "Yeah, I just got back from Ash Wednesday." And then the guy is supposed to say something like. Um, like, like he's really trying to impress her, but he's like completely missing the point of what she said. And so mine was tries to impress her. And it was, I too, like externalizing my spirituality with meaningless rituals or something <laughs> along those lines. So then I got a, I got a Facebook message that said this, uh, this meme is needlessly inflammatory. And so I responded with another meme, which was the Nadab and Abihu meme that said the first Ash Wednesday. <laughs> So I was like, you want to talk about inflammatory? Let's talk about inflammatory. Because what's inflammatory uh, so good. is man-made holy days in right. the most literal sense. Right. Exactly. So can I just say, I love, you and I were actually like texting back and forth mm -hmm. before you dropped that, right? And you'd actually yeah. said that to me and I was like, that's so good. Put it on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> this is, so apparently what we do is, for anybody who's listening and thinks that what we're talking about is not our actual real lives, we just egg each other on, I guess, during the week. We do. And yeah, pretty much now, all the time. Yeah, controversy is is what we do. Even though this shouldn't be biblically controversial, we're just right. calling everybody's attention to it. Yeah. Yeah. Freedom. So fighters. what about you before we, we move on to our subject? What are you denying this well, week? Well, mine is kind of lame in comparison, but I, th this is just a chance for me to rant or something I'd like to deny. I just want to deny everybody who keeps telling me that blockchain is the new internet thing. 
Like, so, you know, like Bitcoin is this big thing yeah. and blockchain is the under technological infrastructure that underpins it. But I don't know if you get this a lot because you're involved in tech and you enjoy technological things. But I just keep hearing this anytime I say, like, I, I really don't think Bitcoin is scalable. Somebody inevitably says, oh, well, it's not about Bitcoin. It's about blockchain because everything's going to be blockchain. It's it's like the Internet was because it's so amazing. We don't even know yet what it's capable of. But I want to say when the Internet came out, it wasn't like people were like, we don't know what we'll use this for. It yeah. was more like we know that this has astounding implications. But with right. blockchain, it's still pretty much like, yeah, this is interesting. But I, like, I don't know how I can use this personally or how my how my particular business is. Like, how is your church going to roll out blockchain? <laughs> so I, I'm a little bit of a troglodyte in this area. I don't have any idea what blockchain is. What? I Seriously? have no idea. I know what Bitcoin is. Um, and I know that everybody's freaking out about Bitcoin and it's about to crash hard, <laughs> but, um, I, I have no idea. I'm, I mean, I don't have any idea what blockchain is. It's some sort of like background, like computing process oh, or something man. like that. We're going to have to at some point do the reform blockchain. Like we should just, th so here's how, how big blockchain has come. So it's just the, it's the ledger software. It's the decentralized ledger software that keeps track of all the transactions, but it's on a group network. That's the, right. uh, the large scale picture of it. So that's why it's so impressive is because rather than a single computing source, it's happening across all this entire network and it's all right. live and they're, they're keeping track of all these records as opposed to it being single point. But the big thing is that just like you remember like the turn of the century, remember like pets.com, right? If you, if you had a company at that turn of the century and you just put .com on it, it raised like your price. Everybody thought you were awesome. That's happening yeah. now with blockchain. So if you add blockchain to anything, it causes like the share price to jump right up or it causes yeah. your business to be immediately like, more impressive. So I'm just tired of blockchain. Now, this is just me ranting. That's okay. It's, you know, people have such a short historical memory because there was a dot-com bubble and then there was a dot-com burst. So like the same exactly. thing is going to happen. Like everybody's going to freak out. It's going to be the greatest thing ever. And then it's going to fall apart. And then it's going to be like, oh yeah, blockchain. It's like, oh yeah, QuickBooks. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're Mint. calling it right now. Yeah. Let's just start the reform blockchain. I don't know what that is exactly, but I think that we should say we own it. I will challenge all of our listeners. Make a podcast called the Reform Blockchain. And if you make it to 15 episodes, we will strongly consider you for membership in the Society of Reform Podcasters. <laughs> also, to tie this right, right in a bow before we go to the real meat, if you will. Yeah. Um. Speaking back of Twitter, if I ever tweet something and just use the word Bitcoin or blockchain, like even if I'm just being totally snarky, yeah, I'm telling you, I will get a, a million different people responding to that that I don't know. They, they come out of the woodwork if you just use the word Bitcoin. That's how crazy yeah. it is. So I challenge people, what you should start doing is start just preaching the Bitcoin. gospel. Yeah, preach the gospel in your tweets and then just hashtag or just put in the word Bitcoin somewhere in there and you'll get exposure like you would not believe. So this is challenge number two and three of the night for our, our <laughs> listeners. I want an acronym for the gospel that is theologically sound and spells out Bitcoin. So that's the first challenge, the second challenge of the night. The third challenge of the night is I need a T-shirt logo that is like, you know, like the Coca-Cola, right. like Jesus Christ, he's the real thing or whatever, like those corny T-shirts that you guys talked about on Fast God stuff. Oh, I man. need a Bitcoin logo that is somehow morphed into something Christian. So those are the three challenges for the night. One of them is the bigger challenge than the other ones. So, Man, I'm trying to think of something creative. I just can't come up. Something with cryptocurrency and the real ransom. I don't know. That's that's pretty good, actually. There's there's some, some traction in there. Lots of options. 
But back yeah. to the real good stuff. Let's talk a little bit about this holiday thing because we're in that season we where are. this is a point of conversation and it's on people's minds. So this is a good time as we both experience to kind of just air this, get our feelings out on this and talk about it from a biblical standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we in the past have been pretty clear that we think that Christians have liberty to celebrate historical redemptive events uh, in whatever way they feel is appropriate in terms of um, personal devotion. So it's not, that's not saying they could do whatever they want in worship, but if a person wants to gather with their family and make all these jokes about like midwinters, no, no special reason gifts. But if a person wants to gather with their family on December 25th and open presents and do that because they love Jesus, that is perfectly fine. If a pastor on the last weekend of December wants to preach about the incarnation, that's perfectly fine. Um, so Lent is not necessarily a part of this conversation. Um, Ash Wednesday specifically is what we're going to talk about. Right. Um, and, and even something like Good Friday or the the days that are associated with so-called Holy Week, even those are kind of a different category or a different animal of things than Ash Wednesday. And we're going to talk about why, but it's really important because I don't want people to, to go back and listen to our back catalog and think that we're just hopelessly contradictory. We might be at times. I mean, we're, we're fallible humans and we make mistakes, but, um, this is a different conversation than the Lent or Advent, um, conversation that we've had in the past. It is because Ash Wednesday is a particular day with a particular purpose. And that's what I kind of want to get into is why it is separate and distinct and why you said some of the things you did on Twitter and why I laughed and almost fell off my chair when I saw those things. So (laughs) let's, let's start by talking about like what or how you understand Ash Wednesday. Like what's the whole purpose of the thing? Yeah. So I, I actually, as I've said in the past, um, most of my early formative Christian years, um, I've been a Christian for 20 years and like three weeks now. And most of my formative Christian years um, as a young Christian were in a, a large Lutheran megachurch. And so um, Ash Wednesday was always kind of a pinnacle of the year. And for me, um, my understanding at the time was Ash Wednesday was all about kicking off this season of a sort of a focused, um, hyper focus on sin and on contrition and repentance. So, um, it's typically a sort of a somber time. Um, you know, the colors that are associated with it liturgically are darker. Um, you have meditations and readings on sort of sin and the consequences of sin. Um, And so that was my understanding. And Ash Wednesday is a particular kind of like kickoff to that with a specific reminder of the fact that we are from dust or from ashes and to dust we will return. So the the beginning of the season with Ash Wednesday is a statement that the church makes to you and then you with these ashes on your forehead as you go into the world kind of make to everyone else that we are all mortal creatures who are dependent on God for our very existence and that we will die someday. Right. Those are those are perfectly fine things to say. They're all good biblical truths. Um, the problem with it is there's nothing in the Bible about it at all. <laughs> so, uh, so in, in the Lutheran, you know, just last week we talked about the second commandment and the images of Christ, and I I texted you earlier this week that it's kind of like all of a sudden I realized this is another second commandment episode, right. and the reason is that this has everything to do with the regular principle of worship, and so. 
the Lutheran church, they just don't, they don't believe in the regular principle of worship. So they don't care that it's not, there's no biblical proscription or prescription for it. They're saying, well, there's nothing saying we can't do it. God's left the church uh, and his, her officers to exercise wisdom and prudence in how we worship God. And that may at times uh, involve kind of creating new ceremonies or rituals or ways to express the faith that hadn't, that don't have a biblical precedence at all. Right. That, what about you? Pre- what do you think about Ash Wednesday? Well, that's pretty much how I understand it. But what's different maybe is my perspective has got to be a little bit more academic because I wasn't involved. Like I've never been on the L train before. So, yeah. but what's interesting is my wife and I used to attend an evangelical free church where they practice this. So like talk about just the broad spectrum of people kind of picking this thing up. And I'm not even sure it maintains even some of its original intent in that particular context. However, I mean, we back all the way up. So we've got in like the fourth century and beyond, Christianity is coming to dominate the empire of the Roman empire. And so that cultural dominance is being reflected in two ways. It's a control of like time and space. So space, it makes sense that there's this institution of these churches and relics, but in terms of time, that control is achieved through developing this calendar, which gave the rhythm right. of time a specifically Christian idiom. And so this is part of that. So that's why we're saying there's a differentiation between say like the season of Lent, but then we have within that kicking off Lent, this strange day that comes with a very specific expression and supposedly confers a very specific benefit, which cannot yeah. be achieved any other time. So all I have to say, my understanding from the lovely people that I know in my life that are either Catholic or Lutheran has been that it's everything you said and almost like an addition or maybe like as a, as a side, like a slightly different flavor that the imposition of the ashes is intended to remind us that, yeah, we're dust and we're form- it forms as part of a liturgical movement that specifies a real grieving over sin. So almost like you have these ashes on your head in the same way that Old Testament people would, when they repent, repent in dust and ashes, like similar to like Nineveh or other kings in the Old Testament. And so there's this idea of like, we need to really express that we're really truly sorry and we really truly realize that we we need God because we right. are dust, but even beyond that, that we've sinned so egregiously against them that we need to kind of sit in a pile and really grieve over that sin. So that's how I've always understood it. Yeah. And I, I think it, it bears saying that the, the practice of Lent as a season of fasting um, predates the Roman Catholic Church. So right, that's true. if you listen to your average Roman Catholic apologist, they're going to they're gonna try to paint this picture of this unbroken development from Peter to Francis. And um, just speaking as a historian and as someone who's done a fair amount of studying this, that is about the most ridiculous thesis you can ever have. And it's totally unsubstantiable uh, in any sort of uh, rigorous academic way. But the practice of Lent predates the Council of Nicaea. I wouldn't say the Roman Catholic Church was actually discernible as the Roman Catholic Church until probably the 8th or 9th century, right? It was really kind of Gregory the Great that sort of started the Roman Catholic Church on this trajectory of the primate, not just the primacy of the, the Roman bishop, but the sort of ultimate primacy of the Roman bishop over all of the other bishops. Um, so Lent as a practice, um, a discernible practice predates not only Roman Catholicism, but it predates the Council of Nicaea. So it's an ancient, ancient practice. 
Um, the practice of ashing on Ash Wednesday at the beginning of Lent, I, I don't actually know when when that came into being, but I've heard other um, historians have commented on it, saying also that that predates the Roman Catholic Church. And a lot of Lutherans will point to that too when you try to say like, well, you're just adopting a Roman Catholic um, kind of idiom. They're going to say, no, well, the church has been doing this lo- a long time before Rome, Roman Catholicism was a definable thing. Yeah, and our point, I don't think, is necessarily that, well, we don't do it because it's Roman Catholic. Right. We're, we're trying to assess it by way of the scriptures itself. So right. maybe it's helpful to say, and, and I can only speak for myself, but I assume you agree with me, but you'll let me know right now. My commitment to Christian liberty means that I certainly would not regard it as a sinful in itself for someone to recognize Ash Wednesday, but I think that same commitment also means that we have to strongly object to anybody trying to argue that it should be a normative practice for Christians or to impose it on their congregations or to claim that it confers benefits that are unavailable elsewhere. And I think that is, for me, the heart of why I really struggle with what's happening on Ash Wednesday. Yeah, I mean, I think we probably have to draw a line between Ash Wednesday as like a special gathering of the church and the actual practice of ashing oneself. Because I would say that the actual ritual of applying ashes to yourself um, in in the process of Ash Wednesday is a sinful thing to do. I think it's a blatant violation of the regulative principle of worship. So for me, um, you know, I had one person ask me, like, well, what if we have an Ash Wednesday service, but we don't do ashes? Okay, well, it seems a little weird to call that an Ash Wednesday service. Right. Um, this is if a you're service. not doing ashes, it's just a Wednesday Lenten service, which is fine. Like, you can meet a special times during the week. That's totally fine. But the the... The problem that I have is that the regulative principle applies the, – the liberty that you're talking about in the regulative principle, if you ask me, applies to the private practices of uh, individual Christians. So um, there's disagreement in the Reformed world about how exactly the regulative principle applies to non-gathered worship. Um, there's very little people that would say it doesn't apply in any sense to, to private worship. So I couldn't, for example – and this is a, like a really blatant example, but I couldn't sacrifice a goat during my private devotion time, right? That wouldn't be something I could do. Um, I couldn't, um, I couldn't engage in some sort of other activity and call it Christian worship just because I just because I have liberty to do so. So there's kind of that element that when you're when you're in your private devotions, you have a certain level of of flexibility and liberty. Um, you know, do I stand or sit? Some of these are, are what we call circumstances, but, um, do I watch a video? You know, do I watch a, a YouTube video that is a, an uplifting, encouraging sort of maybe a Christian worship song or something like that? You can do those things, but where Ash Wednesday becomes a problem for me is that it blends that line between the gathered corporate worship of the church and between those private practices. And that's why I say this is different than Lent as a whole is that this is necessarily something that um, is attached to a formal activity of the church, right? If I if I mash up the little ashes in my own home and I put the ashes on my head and then I tell someone who believes in Ash Wednesday that that's what I did, they're going to look at, look at me and go like, wait a minute, you, the, the pastor didn't apply that to you? Well, then right. I, what, what's the point? Right, exactly. Uh, and I would agree, like part of it... That's where it becomes such a problem in the Roman tradition is it, it's it's what they kind of call a sacramental. It's not actually a sacrament, but it sort of has almost like a flavor of a sacrament or a function of a sacrament. And my understanding is that they would actually say that 
the practice of ashing is sort of an extension of the practice of penance. It's like a particular way that you do penance in a particular time of year, and it's it por- it conveys a particular special kind of grace. Yes. And there are other times of years that that they do. You know, there was for a while you could get a plenary indulgence for following the Pope on Twitter, and like that's ridiculous, but it's the same kind of thing that the Pope issues these special indulgences that um, remit temporal consequences of sin. And Ash Wednesday is a particular type of that. Right. But I don't think that we have the liberty as the church to invent new practices, even if we don't impose them. Right. So a church could say, well, we're going to do this, but nobody's obligated to come. It's, it's a, it's an empty symbol. It doesn't actually do anything. We just want to do it. I don't think the church has the liberty to do that. I don't think so either. So I think we have to be really careful, right? Because this is something that, um, it leads us a lot of weird places. Have you had that experience too? For sure. It's, this is the kind of thing that we ought to be asking. Why do people do this? And why might we feel compelled to want to participate or even to have some kind of, I don't know, like kind of like response to this where we want to identify or, or sense that like, well, maybe this is well-intentioned because I, as I was thinking about it this week, I, I don't even think the motive behind Ash Wednesday is good. It might be helpful in the sense that right. we have this sense that we recognize or need to recognize just how sinful we are before God. But I think it does lead to, into weird situations. Let me throw out one that I, that just came to my head. So if we're saying, and I can't, I come to this idea because going back to Twitter again, because I tweeted something about Lent, Twitter decided that what I wanted to see then was in kind of the moment section, like lots of videos from Catholic priests explaining Lent and Ash Wednesday. Right. Yeah. So I ended up watching like a lot of videos because I was very curious. And I watched one in particular about a priest explaining Ash Wednesday. He was very well-spoken. He was very enthusiastic. I thought for all intents and purposes, he was articulating the position very well. That doesn't mean it made sense, but I thought he was, he was really doing a great job. And what he said at one point is he was trying to encourage Catholics, all people really, but Catholics in particular, to go out and to make sure that they got ashes. And one, at one point he says, the reason we do this is so that we can show God and ourselves that we are sorry for our sins and that we are serious about needing him. Now, for yeah. me, that's like a huge problem because now we're, we're saying that there must be some kind of external sign for me to prove to God that I am serious about what I'm doing. I've taken everything, like you said, that was being internalized, everything spiritual, and I'm flipping on its head and now saying, everything about faith must be visual and without this visual sign and without it being conferred by essentially a vetted officer of the church who in doing this is giving me some benefit that what I'm doing is legitimate and that I'm earning some kind of favor in a small way, then it's not legitimate. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a really messed up wrong direction, isn't it? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And I think one of the phenomena that I just, it, it kind of boggles my mind with Lent is, so there are evangelicals that would just buck against any idea of anything liturgical. Right. At all. They, like, they don't want a, I mean, they don't, they don't realize that like the order of service that they use every Sunday is, is a liturgy, but they kind of buck against this idea. Sometimes they even like resist the idea of like formal pastors who have training. But then when it comes to Ash Wednesday, they're all about Ash Wednesday. Yeah. And Carl Truman wrote a really interesting article a couple of years ago about kind of about this phenomena. And what it is, is there's this desire to connect to the ancient church. There's this desire to lay down roots, particularly among millennials, because on the one hand, they've sort of like divorced themselves from any sort of historical trend, right? That's a big part of um, 
postmodernism is denying sort of the meta narrative, the overall story that everything has to do with the now and what's happening and what you're experiencing right now. But there's still this impulse, particularly among, among millennials to connect to the early church. And the prop, the, the premise is that if I can get back to the practice of the early church, then that's where the real, the real uh, blessings are. That's where real Christianity is. And so they see this practice. That's kind of this ancient practice. And they, they just, they adopt it and they eat it up, but they lose all of the actual meaning in it because as we've said, the, the meaning in, at least for the majority of people that I've talked to, is that this is a special communication to God and to the world, and there's a special kind of spiritual benefit you know in the catholic right, system exactly. it's, it's like a it's an indulgence it's actually a, an indulgence that happens it's you it's get an act of penance but in the in like the lutheran world and the evangelical world that does this that practices this it's really a special spiritual benefit that comes from our own self-reflection right we kind of drum up this special spiritual state by our our acts of of contrition and our focus on sin and we bring that about and that's totally backwards from the reformed or even just the general protestant way of thinking about how god does his work in the human heart right it and it must necessarily go there so right. in other words even though you may think well i'm just kind of going along with the flow like what's really the harm Th- that just means that we don't understand what we're doing and that should be a problem in of itself i, th- I think carl truman is right there's among a lot of people, they sense this poverty in a connection to a liturgy. By the way, like, you know, um, R.C. Sproul wrote, Everybody's a Theologian. I'm just going to write yeah. a book called Everybody's Got a Liturgy just to get that out there because so we can, <laughs> yeah. be do- we can be done with the whole thing of like, I don't have a liturgy. I don't like liturgy. So everybody's got one. And so if what you're doing is just going through these motions, putting the ash on the forehead, and then what you're doing is, of course, falling into this pattern by which you are then supporting, whether you believe it or not, the reason that other people give for why that is done. But I think most of the time, you're right, somebody is feeling like they're being conferred with some kind of benefit, or they're earning something, or that they're really expressing truly something that they feel. I'm not saying that there aren't people that are authentically going into an Ash Wednesday service and getting the ashes and coming with a heart of contrition. But here's where I'd say I even have a a problem with that, is because part of the event is to say, this is a liturgical moment where I'm showing how sinful I am, how sorry I really am. I'm going to sit and mourn in ashes. For us who have been regenerated, given faith, saved by Christ, Paul says that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. Yeah. Once dead. So I don't know what this, why we'd have to continually be going back to a state of full mourning over our sin. We are always to come before the Lord repentant and contrite. But I think we kind of come out of that in a different way with celebration that Jesus has taken that on himself. And therefore we need not mourn in ashes every year like this. Right. I, I don't know. Is that too strong? Do you know what I'm, do you know what I'm driving out with that? No, I think that's good. I mean, there, there's a place for us to mourn our sin and to grieve our sin. And, and I mean, on a side note, that's why the Psalms are so important is because all of that's there, right? So if you sure. really get into the Psalms and you pray the Psalms and you sing the Psalms, there is that whole liturgical movement, if you will. There's the movement from, recognizing your sin and grieving and mourning for your sins all the way to trusting in the Lord and being elevated to the heavenly places. But I think you're right that, that this, um, and I think even good Friday kind of falls in this, like 
Christ is not on the cross anymore. Amen. And we, we as Christians are no longer dead in our sins. So we should recognize our current estate, that we should recognize that we are no longer dead in trespasses, but that we are still faulty and frail. So I think there's a place for recognizing sin, but I agree with you. This this sort of like obsession that happens this time of year is is sort of a, a weird phenomena. I want to just read a, a just a, a excerpt from that article. Um, I'll put the link in the show notes, but it's called Ash Wednesday, Picking and Choosing Our Piety. And he goes on about how um, it even sort of makes sense for certain traditions to do this, that it has to do with sort of cultural identity. But then he says... Um, an appropriately rich reformed sacramentalism also renders Ash Wednesday irrelevant. Right. Uh, infant baptism emphasizes better than anything else outside the preached word the priority of God's grace and the helplessness of sinful humanity in the face of God. The Lord's Supper, both in its symbolism, humble elements of bread and wine, and its meaning, the feeding on Christ by faith, indicates our continuing weakness fragility and utter dependence on Christ. Um, he also says, uh, let me find it. I lost where the thing was. This is a great article, by the way. It, it I, is a great article. I really he, like he talks article. about how he suspects, um, here, in light of this, I suspect the reason evangelicals are rediscovering Lent as much to do with the poverty of their own liturgical tradition as anything else. American evangelicals are past masters at appropriating anything that catches their fancy in church history and claiming it as their own. From the ancient fathers as the first emergence to the old school men of old Princeton as precursors to the young, restless, and reformed to Dietrich Bonhoeffer as a modern American evangelical. Yet, if your own tradition lacks the historical, liturgical, and theological depths for which you are looking, it may be time to join a church that can provide the same. So his point is that um, evangelicals are adopting these traditions. They're adopting these semi-sacramentals and these liturgical practices to try to sort of fill in gaps for the the way that their own traditions are failing. And he's saying like, well, rather than do that, why don't you just join a tradition that actually provides you what you need? And his his point obviously is that the, the reformed Presbyterian tradition for him already supplies everything that those things need and has the added benefit of not, you know, constantly violating the regular principle. And this is one of those things where we need to realize as Christians that we do have a liturgy as prescribed in the Bible. And sometimes the downside is not the downside, but the unfortunate thing rather is that our churches just don't express that as they should. So our liturgical calendar has a way of marking time. It's six days of earthly pursuits and one day of rest and gathered worship. Like we need to get hyped up about that. We need to put it in its proper place. So I think even among my own friends, I think what's happened is we're just trading signs. So we spoke a lot last time in the second commandment about the difference between faith and sight. And this is one of those things I think my gut is that a lot of people see this evangelical wise and they're like, well, I mean, it's not like I know different traditions do this. I know Catholics, it seems to be predominantly Catholic and Lutheran thing, but like, I'm not worshiping Mary. This doesn't really seem to cut across right. anything I really understand that would go against my theology. And I kind of like this idea of having a visible sign, something that I get to participate in that shows some kind of demonstrative effect. And I think what we're getting at is that is the problem, that right. we're again trading faith and sight. And we should be focused more on faith than trying to replace or insert these external symbols to make us feel good. And what I love about Carl Truman's article is he basically says, I think at one point in that is all this is irrelevant because a really good constructive worship service is going to do all the things that you say that you're getting from Ash Wednesday. It's going to 
convey to you the seriousness of sin by reading the law. It's going to give you an opportunity for corporate prayer and confession, and it's going to give you gospel forgiveness, and it's going to give you this opportunity as a congregation to be ministered to by the reading out loud of Scripture. So go to that. Run to that thing. That's actually what you're craving. And that's why, again, there's a big difference between what is being accomplished on Ash Wednesday versus just Lent writ large. Yeah. And I think um, the the other element that I notice is Ash Wednesday for a lot of people becomes just an excuse to brag about your spirituality. So, you know, it's funny because I, I had one more meme and it basically said, um, we demonstrate our contrition and humility by inventing a sacrament in which we put ashes on our face and show it to everybody. Right. And, you know, it's, I'm just going to read from Matthew six, starting in verse 16. It says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly. I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And so it's, it's, I don't want to say funny, but there's not another word coming to mind. It's, it's interesting and sort of humorous that it's ironic. It is ironic that, you know, we're told explicitly that when we and, and the fasting that the hypocrites were doing was a was an attempt to show contrition for sin. It was their demonstration of their contrition for sin. And they went around making sure everybody saw how miserable they were over their sins. And it seems like the practice of ashing is is the same thing for a lot of people. And, you know, I put that meme up and of course people are like, oh, nobody ever does that. And it took me all of seven seconds to scroll down my Twitter feed to look at the hashtag Ash Wednesday, and I found a makeup tutorial for how to make sure your makeup looks good so you can really highlight your ashes. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and there's all these different Ash Wednesday selfies, and oh. and there's a term for it. People call them ashies. That right? is crazy. So there's a, whole, there's a whole culture now that's developed around showing off your Ash Wednesday markings, and that's even if we were to recognize the propriety of that symbol, which we're not, but if we were to do that, this flies in the face of that symbol entirely. You can't demonstrate your humility by bragging to everybody about it. Right. That is crazy. I don't even know what to say to that. But this is, I think, where we end up going. Ash Wednesday has a kind of strong carnal element to it. It There's this desire to do something which simply looks cool and which has a certain ostentatious spirituality about it because as an act of piety, it costs nothing, yet implies a really deep seriousness, a deep call to what's going on. And that may not be the case. I think this is what happens when we get focused on sight instead of faith. So it's super ironic that you're on Twitter and here we are in this season that's designed for self-denial. And we've got this symbol that's really showing more of our ingrained consumerism and wanting to show off. It's almost like if it did at some point have a genuine biblical purpose, which I, I don't think we're saying didn't, but even if we can say, it had some redeeming element. It's almost all lost when people are just right. going on and posting pictures of them to show like, this is like the same thing of people wearing the stickers that says I voted. Right. Like how is how is that? Di- it's not that much different. And, and I know people are going to push back on this and you can send us all the hate mail that you want. I'm so good at receiving it now from because of Twitter this week, but um, <laughs> I know people are going to say, well, there's some people that are like truly coming with the right reason for this. And I think all I'm saying is intent always precedes content. And so if there are people that are participating that have the right intent, then what we should be saying is come to the right content, which is God's church where 
we participate uh, on the Lord's Day in all these things in a way that is regulated by the scriptures. Like, for, it blows my mind, honestly, with the challenge that God gives us for holy living, why I would want to invent any other thing to yeah. complicate that. Yeah. Unless what I'm trying to do in my own humanity is create something that makes me look better or makes me think that I'm actually doing something that ingratiates God toward my toward me. And I think that by and large is what's happening here, or at least my argument is it's going to bend us in that direction. And yeah. we, we just need to avoid that kind of craziness. Yeah. And, and I do hear people who make the argument, well, you know, there are some people who come at this the wrong way, but there are a lot of people who are doing this for the right reason. Sure. And my, my response to that is always like, well, if someone was really doing this because of their contrition and their hatred for sin, then there's no reason they couldn't also deny themselves one step further and not take this symbol. Exactly. It's like the, the contrition for sin is almost like counteracted by the, um, outward display of that contrition for sin. You know, it's the old joke that, you know, Moses couldn't have written the Torah because it says Moses was the most humble man. And you can't write that about yourself if you're actually a humble man. I think Moses wrote the Torah. That's just an example. But, you know, people say those kinds of things, but there's an element of truth to it that if you really are humble and contrite of spirit and, and that is your focus, then why do you need to show everybody that? It seems like you would want to not show everybody that because that's kind of the heart of contrition is that you are are humble about it and you you just you it's about you it's about your contrition before God and it's about your service to God it's not about demonstrating that and showing that to other people it's a spiritual oxymoron isn't it exactly it's a crazy combination that shouldn't exist what's funny is we've said this time and time again we never planned for these episodes i love that you went to matthew 6 cuz that's where i was also going to go <laughs> we need to i don't know that there's anywhere else you can go with this fight over I the mean, scriptures it's like if you wanted to invent a ritual that that contradicted matthew 6 that this would be this the ritual would, that this would, would be do. it right i mean and that's where i want to be like we need to be careful when we approach theological matters and i have this tendency as much as anybody else sometimes i want to be right rather than i want to be accurate and we kind of need to yeah. check ourselves sometimes and when we engage in something like this this topic of Ash Wednesday, we ought to ask, am I defensive because I want to be right or because I want to be accurate as the Bible defines things? And so that's why I think we're just saying you need to give a fair hearing to the idea that this is totally outside the biblical scope. And I was looking at Matthew, beginning of Matthew 6, when Jesus says, whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So just like you said, it's almost like Jesus is saying, here's the normative way, though this is about prayer. Here's the normative way to understand the expression of spiritual things. It's, it is shameful to God, I think, when hypocrites, in order to obtain glory from men, pray in public or at least make a pretense of praying because hypocrisy is always ambitious. And we have to watch that as humans. Like we want to be ambitious and hypocrisy is often where that ambition gets expressed. And so yeah. I think this is just we like a shot across the bow is a warning to all of us that we need to be careful with this type of thing, how we express our spirituality by ashing, for instance, is like I think a great example of the type yeah. of thing that we want to stay away from. And it, Christ does not withdraw us from public exercise of faith. He doesn't do that here. But he only admonishes us to have God always before our eyes when we engage in things like prayer or like this type of expression. So the objective is not to avoid the presence of men, 
But I think it's, it's honestly, I think what God desires from us first in issues like this of contrition, humility, surrender is first to seek anonymity rather than right. desire a crowd of people to see us advertising our spiritual devotion. I think that's what we get from Matthew 6. Yeah. Yeah, and th- the other thing that strikes me is the other, um, the only attempted biblical argument that anybody made through this whole thing with me is to point to the passages that you alluded to earlier that talk about repenting in dust and ashes, right? They point to Job sitting on a pile of dust and ashes and scraping his skin with pot shards and, you know, people repenting in, in burlap and ashes, all of that stuff. Right. And I just want to say, like, that is insulting to compare that to what happens on Ash Wednesday, right? Putting a little piece of a little, a little marking of ash on your forehead and then going back to your daily life is it's not even in the same universe as what we're talking about with the biblical symbols of repentance with ashes and dust. Right. And if you want to see that you can look up like a, a, a funeral in the middle East right now and look up what the whalers are doing and the not whalers like the hockey team or whalers like the people who hunt whales or Bob but like whalers like people who are whaling. Um, you can see what they're doing. It is visceral. It is painful to watch. It hurts to even think about. They are putting their whole being into into demonstrating outwardly how just destroyed and distraught with this source of grief, usually a funeral, but just destroyed with this grief that they are. And to, to compare like a little marking of ash that you get, you know, people go and do it on their lunch break and then they go back to work and they sit at their desk and they feel all great about themselves because they've repented in dust and ashes is as close to just a flat out lie as I think you can get without actually being a flat out lie. Now there are lots of people who are not intending to do that. But that ends up being what it is. You're taking a biblical symbol and you're watering it down until it means almost nothing. And then you're claiming the fullness of that symbol, even though you've watered it down until it means nothing of the sort. And that that's just, that's something we do with Christian symbols all the time. Right. You know, I remember the Lord's Supper. It's not like the, the actual sanctioned symbols and signs in the Bible are abstracted from this, right? How many kids went to summer camp every summer and got baptized two or three times? Like that's, we take these symbols and rather than recognizing what the biblical truth is behind them, we make them what we want them to be. And then we try to claim the full like history of those symbols for, we co-opt it for evidence for our view. Right. That's a good point. I think part of this is just recognizing that participation can be dangerous. And by participating in something, even if you're like, well, that's not, that's not at all what I mean. Like I don't. I'm not necessarily trying to say that I'm in the same position as Job or the Ninevites, but your point is well taken. That's essentially what you're equating it with. And that's a really dangerous, I think, like a really dangerous parallel to draw. I I would not want to try to make the argument that that's what I'm doing because there's no way probably I'm sincere enough, quite honestly, because I'm not sure that the threat of my sin, the threat of God's holiness, even in that moment, weighs enough upon me to really replicate what happened in those passages. But beyond that, just because you're like, this is not how I intended it for to go, or this is not what it means to me, doesn't mean that, again, by participating at one, that you have a weird kind of reverse testimony because everybody's looking at, at the ashes on your forehead and thinking right. one thing. And two, that whatever environment in which you participate in, that is your church, that they don't think that they're conferring upon you like the full weight of what they believe it to mean. So right. it's just problematic. I think we should really think about it. I, 
I liked you tweeted me something. You not tweeted me. You texted me something this week that I thought was really good, and we should probably like end on. And that was that it's funny how something extended like it's funny how reformed people want to be reformed up to oh, the yeah. point of where it means doing or not doing something. And I yeah. I think that's really apropos. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's really common in sort of the young reform restless movement. It's not quite as common in the sort of confessional stream of reform thinking. But even in the confessional stream of thinking, there are a lot of people that want to um, they want to be reformed. They want to be able to wear that name tag. But when it comes to being satisfied with the everyday, frankly, kind of boring life of of a reformed Christian, right? The reformed Christian life is not flashy. It's not sexy. It's not anything to write home about. We have bread and we have wine and we participate in fellowship. And that that's the reformed Christian life, right? There's no other extra ceremonies. There's no incense. There's no extra candles. Like that's, that's just the way it is. And it really is the case that people, they bucket that because it's boring. Yes, like it it's not entertaining. It's not engaging in, in the sense that, you're not going to walk away from every Sunday and feel like you had an amazing experience. But right. that is just fine. Like, it's totally fine. Michael Horton's book, Ordinary, really just rocked my world on this. And it's all about the fact that, like, we we look at the amazing sunsets and we think those are the peaks of existence. But we we forget all of the just ho-hum sunsets that we didn't even notice in the, in the middle. And that's the most of our life. Right. right? Most dinners are boring dinners. It's plain chicken with rice or mashed potatoes, right? It's not always going to be that really great steak. And and that's, I think, where we should end is that Christian piety is all about the ordinary means of grace. And so anytime you have something that gets introduced that is sort of presented as an extraordinary means of grace, Ash Wednesday, um, special rights things, you know, special events, those kinds of things. Anytime you introduce something that is outside of the ordinary means of grace, you're probably straying off the path that you're supposed to be on. Right on. Because that's what God has called us to. Right on. I like that. The flashy part of following closely after the Lord Jesus Christ is Jesus himself. If you exactly. want, if you're looking for the flashiness, I like what and you put said that about on a t-shirt. God working through yeah, God working through ordinary means of grace, which is totally right on. The flashiness is appropriating him by faith. So if you're looking for that flashiness, just like we said last week, it's not in conjuring up an image of Jesus himself, but yeah. dwelling and meditating on the loveliness of who he is, which is his character and his being and his accomplishments and his love for us. That's where all the beauty is. That's where all the good yep. stuff is. But the thing about that is when we make the flashiness all about Jesus, putting the weight of glory where it really should be. That means that even in our colleagues, our group of colleagues or our sphere of influence, we don't get notoriety. Nobody points us out. We oftentimes don't look any physically different. There's nothing advertising uh, unless we're bearing the fruit of the spirit that we've done this or that particularly sanctimonious or holy thing. But I think that is the point of the Christian life. The true piety makes Jesus the thing that's flashy and makes much less of ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you have been blessed by this episode or if you enjoyed it, uh, we would love it if you would share it with a friend. So find, go to Twitter and look up the hashtag Ash Wednesday and just copy this link onto everybody's <laughs> Twitter that you can find that use the hashtag. 
Um, <laughs> I'm not going to say don't do going. that. You should please do that. That would be amazing. Um, but seriously, if you have someone that you've had these conversations with, um, we've been getting a lot of great feedback that people are finding our conversations helpful. Um, we have seemed to have been graced by God to just get our topics out at the right time. And so it, it kind of hits that sweet spot people f- feel like we need to hit. So if this has been helpful, share it with a friend, post it to your social media. Um, we appreciate everybody who listens to the show, and we just love that this conversation is happening. And our new custom, of course, is that on the last week of every month, we try to take some voicemails, some questions, and just dialogue about those. And that's coming up, Tony. So it is. here's your chance to get some last-minute questions in. Leave us a voicemail, and you can do that by calling 607-444-2767. Yep, and you can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com. Uh, we mentioned before that if you want to support the show, uh, we have set up a PayPal account that uh, will be receiving gifts at that same email address. So if you want to uh, support the show, like I said, we don't have a lot of costs, but we want to we want to build up a little bit of a rainy day fund in case somebody's microphone or computer breaks or we need to change like web hosts or something like that. Um, we would love any donations or, or gifts that you have. Um, we're not going to give you anything besides c- to continue to produce the show. So if you think the show's worth it, then support the show. If not, then keep listening and we're happy with that too. Also, we could use some money because we're about to set up our own cryptocurrency with blockchain. That's true. We're going to call it um, Brother Coin. <laughs> I kind of like that actually. Bithood. I kinda, do you know that there's a coin called CryptoKitty? Yeah, there's a lot of cryptocurrencies. <laughs> we so why should, not us? We should make a cryptocurrency called like Bigfoot coin. What would, we could like cross the cryptocurrency and the cryptozoology stream. Oh, I see where you're going with that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll make we'll make billions of dollars. We honestly probably somebody is already going to do that and just rip off this idea. We have so many great ideas in this podcast. It's true. It's true. We should we should start a law firm and we should sue all the people that st- steal all of our <laughs> Matt Butts, why aren't you doing that for us? <laughs> Get your Butts. degree done and then we're gonna all make just grips of cash. By suing people who stole all of our amazing ideas. Come be our legal representation. Yeah. You will You will never want for controversy. No, you won't. On that note. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh, what if I'm fine?